Hello and welcome to Take My Advice, I'm not using it. My name's Ollie Henderson. So, to mark the end of the series, and because so many of you enjoyed the podstorm that I recorded in January, I'm going to be recording a few short episodes with the most recent future work-life newsletters. Since the beginning of February, they have been a little more sporadic than usual, owing to illness and, I think probably, as I said in a previous podcast, a touch of burnout, which is ironic given how many people I spoke to about that very subject in this most recent series of the podcast. Nonetheless, I will be reading through previous six editions of Future Work Life over these three episodes before bringing the series to a close. In the next series, I've already got some amazing guests lined up and that will be starting in May. And in the meantime, over the next couple of months, I'm going to be speaking to entrepreneurs, business leaders and managers about how they've responded to the changes in work over the past year. I'll be collecting this information and sharing it with other businesses to crowdsource ideas and learn from each other, the good stuff and the bad. So if you'd like to find out more about that, please get in touch. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy. Future Work Life number 32, written on February the 11th, 2021. When I grow up, I want to be an inventor. Quote from Jeff Bezos. If you do it right, a few years after a surprising invention, the new thing has become normal. People yawn. That yawn is the greatest compliment an inventor can receive. End quote. Jeff Bezos, who last week stepped aside as CEO of Amazon, doesn't spring to mind as a paragon of healthy work-life balance. Certainly ongoing disputes about unionisation of the company's workforce put him at odds with idealistic views on work culture. It's impossible, though, not to admire the scale of his achievement in creating not one, but multiple category-defining businesses that have changed our understanding, not just of how we shop, but of how and where we do business. I'm idly speculating, but if you'd asked a 10-year-old Jeff Bezos, what do you want to be when you grow up? I'm reasonably sure his response would have been an inventor. Take Amazon's four guiding principles as evidence, for example. Number one, customer obsession. Number two, eagerness to invent. Number three, long-term thinking. And number four, operational excellence. I've just started recording series three of Take My Advice. I'm not using it. And my guest this week is Elvin Turner, an innovation expert whose clients include some of the world's most groundbreaking organisations in the finance, technology, music, drinks and publishing industries. His book, Be Less Zombie, breaks down very practically how to create an innovation culture within an organisation. What's clear is that like Amazon, you have to be intentional in the way you approach innovation, whether it's focused on a product, service or indeed how we work. Have a listen to the podcast and read the book for some great insights. And Here I share a few key takeaways and how you could use them to improve your work lives. Number one, fall in love with the problem. It's easy to get bogged down in the day-to-day of work and life and lose sight of why you're doing all of this. Purpose matters because it's the motivation that keeps you pushing for new solutions and improvements. In Amazon's case, their mission is to be the Earth's most customer-centric company. I'm driven by helping people find a way to work less while achieving more. What problem is your business solving? What is the thing that's getting you out of bed every morning? Ask catalytic questions. The best way to stimulate creative thought is to develop a set of questions that help continually focus on the problem you're looking to solve. Returning to the childhood theme, we all learned how to make a hypothesis in teenage science lessons. Well, by framing assumptions about the questions you're asking, you're more likely to achieve meaningful results. What actually needs to happen because of our idea? What specific progress do we need to create? For whom and in what context? In what manner? With what constraints? 
Number three, continuously run small experiments. AWS, Kindle and Prime are now multi-billion dollar businesses in their own right, but each of them started as a low-level experiment. Low-level in the context of the one of the world's largest companies, of course. Amazon continuously tests new ideas and only scales them once validated. The lesson here is that experimentation could be cheap, it must be fast, and present the opportunity to learn. What's the first experiment you can run in your business? Have a company-wide fika, a tea break every afternoon. Reserve mornings for uninterrupted, focused work. Agree to cancel all meetings for a week. I've had numerous conversations with businesses recently who are at a work-life inflection point. While the early stages of the pandemic showed that collectively we're able to adapt quickly to a new way of working, the next step seems to be presenting more difficulties. Where's the best place to start? Rather than feel overwhelmed by the scale of the challenge, approach it like any other innovation project, through gradual iteration. In this respect, it's useful to consider how the challenge skills gap determines the ability to enter a flow state. I spoke to the author Stephen Kotler last week, and as he explained, and I quote, Flow appears near the emotional midpoint between boredom and anxiety in what scientists call the flow channel, the spot where the task is hard enough to make a stretch, but not hard enough to make a snap. How hard is that? Answers vary, but the general thinking is about 4%. That's it. That's the sweet spot. If you want to trigger flow, the challenge should be 4% greater than the skills. End quote. The compounding effect of ongoing 4% improvement, of course, eventually adds up to something great. So think like an inventor and start by putting in some time to experiment. Future work life number 33, strange dreams and creative things. During my recent pod storm, the most popular episode was about napping and the importance of rest, which probably says much about our collective state of mind right now. You should be pleased to hear that I'll be sharing some more thoughts about sleep with you again today, because while the pandemic is affecting us in many ways, one significant effect is on the way we dream. Various studies, including from King's College, Ipsos Mori, and the University of Helsinki, have reported spikes in how vividly we've experienced dreams over the past 12 months, as well as increases in our nightmares. Why? Well, the first reason is obvious. An increase in anxiety and uncertainty while awake transfers to our unconscious. During our REM, rapid eye movement sleep in particular, this creates strange dreams that amalgamate covid social distancing and all sorts of other weirdness. The fact we remember them more frequently though is significant. In their new book, When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep, Antonio Zadra and Robert Stickgold explain that general sense of unease causes more fragmented and disrupted sleep. And I quote, these nocturnal awakenings lead to the recall of dreams that would have otherwise been forgotten. The amount and quality of your sleep impacts your mood, decision-making and significantly your creativity. Alongside sleep and various other issues, the absence of a daily commute and the school run has, for many, presented the opportunity and need for greater flexibility in their lives. Annie Auerbach's book, Flex, Reinventing Work for a Smarter, Happier Life, suggests that we not only approach our work more flexibly, but listen more to our bodies and be more adaptable in how we manage our home lives and how we consider our futures. Now, the future is inherently uncertain. We literally can't predict what will happen, as evidenced by events over the past 12 months. As I've written countless times before, though, one essential characteristic of success will be creativity, particularly in the context of increased automation and the proliferation of technology in all aspects of our lives and work. Addressing how we view education and learning, particularly from the perspective of our children's generation, Auerbach posits that 
One of the most critical questions in the future will be what does it mean to be human? Specifically, how we think about problems and navigate our way through life will be critical, not the learning of facts. Psychologist J.P. Guilford helped pioneer IQ testing. In the process, noticed that typically more creative people scored lower on the test. Why? It wasn't because they couldn't solve the problems on the test. It was because they converged on a single answer, in contrast to more creative folks whose tendency to divergency led them generate more than one solution. Put another way, the ability to approach problem solving in an open-ended manner allows you to consider a broader range of information and therefore cognitively match a wider range of ideas in pursuit of a new one. And to quote Annie, cross-connection may be the key to creativity. Smashing together two ideas which have been connected, that is a breakthrough. That is what makes creative friction and sparks something fresh. End quote. An increased variety of option is one of the prerequisites of creativity, as David Epstein wrote about the importance of range in his excellent book of the same name. Range offers overwhelming evidence that the famous 10,000 hours of deliberate practice rule is effectively bullshit, at least when you consider it in terms of what psychologist Robin Hogarth calls wicked learning environments characterised by uncertainty and rapid change. A pretty accurate description of the world now and in the future. Rather than specialising, we should purposefully broaden our horizons and incorporate learning about very different subject matters. Aside from granting you new perspectives on life, it lessens the likelihood of cognitive entrenchment, narrowing your field of vision, which considerably reduces your ability to think obliquely and to innovate. Back to our current predicament for a moment. Another condition that encourages creativity is positivity, not an emotion experienced by the majority of people weighed down by a seemingly never-ending lockdown. Neurologically, a good mood is the platform we need to consider less obvious solutions to a difficult problem, which is often where the goal lies. Without digging too deep, right before we arrive at an insight-led idea, there's heightened activity in our brain's anterior cingulate cortex, which is the source of those cross-connections when activated. In short, and given the extensive research on this subject, I'm having to take a massive shortcut here, better mood equals heightened creativity. Now, I can't pretend that I have the answer to a permanently good mood, but let me share some of the triggers that will get your anterior cingulate cortex kicking in. They can help stimulate more divergent thinking and positively affect your mood a virtuous circle of creativity. A short gratitude practice of only five minutes releases dopamine and serotonin, significantly improving our mood. Physical exercise releases dopamine and endorphins into your brain, leaving you feeling happier, more energetic and with heightened productivity. Widening your field of knowledge gives you more angles from which to view a problem and ultimately generate the solution. Aside from the stress-relieving benefits of getting outside and into nature, it also helps with attention restoration, countering the effects of mental fatigue and burnout while also fostering an open meditative mindset. Aside from the positive effect of sleep on aiding physical and mental recovery, Zadra and Stickhold write that for every two hours you spend awake consuming new information and forming new memories, our brains have to go offline for an hour to process the thoughts. So at the very least, a consistent sleep routine and taking the opportunity to nap can help, which I'll admit is easier said than done. In the absence of a good night's sleep, or to augment it, I find it useful to offset the morning fog with my shower routine. Firstly, while the water's running hot, it presents a moment of contemplation, which has repeatedly been shown to present a wonderful opportunity for aha moments. The real revelation for me, though, is ending the shower with at least 30 seconds of ice-cold water, which releases more endorphins and neurotransmitters into the blood to really get it pumping. I'm not sure my wife enjoys my long, indulgent shower so much, but that's another story. 
Nothing particularly groundbreaking here, but it's a great reminder of the benefits of looking after yourself. One word of caution, though. As Annie Albert pointed out when she joined me on the podcast this week, given the stresses and strains of life at the moment, we have to be mindful of not placing even more pressure on people to reconfigure their work and personal lives alone, which is where employers can come in. Leadership modelling a flexible approach for one, but also providing support and coaching to design and optimise their schedule in a way that promotes well-being. Although admittedly, getting involved in planning your staff shower routine could be a step too far. Sweet dreams.